0: Welcome to Tell Me More Live, the recorded version of our live storytelling night at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. In this recording... Well, the next storyteller that we have coming up has very little room to improve as I, as I see it because he, he's done this show a few times. He always tells a good story. He's always smartly dressed, and he's a, a genuine nice person. He's regular here at the Push. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Rick Krupnick. Yeah. We're going to go back to uh, last month. It's the 27th of December. It's a cold winter's morning, and I'm in Paris, France, with my wife. We're there uh, ostensibly because we're going to celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary that very next day. And then... my wife being French, we're visiting family and friends. So Paris is a place that I've returned to, goodness me, 60, 70, 80 times, I've lost count. It's a place for me to go home. And it's a place that gives me memories. Well, that particular morning, uh, my wife, Isabel, says to me, Hey, we need to change some uh, some dollars into euros. Uh, why don't you head down over to the uh, the exchange place on the Rue Marbeuf. I said, sure, I'm happy to do that. Uh, she was going to do some business that morning. So I get dressed and and I make my way up the street called the Rue de Ronde which is where our apartment in Paris is. It's a family apartment. Now, Isabel's mom uh, still lives there, 94, next week. And I walk by and I see all the places that used to be there. I see the uh, the magazine uh, shop that I used to buy my International Herald Tribune for years and years until we had the internet and it was no longer needed. I walked past the pharmacy that Mr. Levy owned for 35 years and come to find out he had literally just retired that past October. Up past the flower shop, now on its second owner, and all the way over to The dry cleaners, which is the only thing that's still been there the entire time, except for the high school, which is where Isabel actually went to high school. And I'm not usually overly nostalgic. Uh, I go someplace, I try to make new memories a lot more than I try to relive the past. But for some reason, this particular trip, a lot of stuff was just coming back to me. And so... I take a subway ride over to, uh, to the Champs-Elysees, get off at the uh, Avenue Franklin Roosevelt, place that I've also been millions of times, walk up the street three blocks, notice that there's an Abercrombie & Fitch store right there in a beautiful location, and it's kind of ruined the location. I know for a fact that there's a Five Guys further up. Yeah. But I'm not going to where the Five Guys is. I'm going to go three blocks, make a left to the Rumar Booth. Now, the Rumar Booth has a lot of meaning for me, especially number seven. And As I'm making my way down the street, number three, by the way, is where I have to go to change the money. I stop in front of number seven. I just stop. And I stare at the door that's facing me the way you all are facing me right now. It's a double wood door, no, uh, no windows on it at all. And I know that if I ring the buzzer to the right, someone's going to let me in, and I'm going to see a courtyard. And that courtyard is going to have evergreen trees on the left-hand side. In the center, there's more trees and usually flowers. And on the right-hand side, there's going to be a place where Somebody can park a car. And I also know that if I look up, there's going to be apartments with balconies that overlook into this courtyard area. And if I walk straight through on the ground floor, there's going to be a very large office space. Space that used to be connected, but now, as I understand it, it's separate. On one side, I would have seen a place called the Kayage, which is actually a place that uh, company that was responsible for sending my wife to the States for the first time, which is how we met. Which I'm not going to talk about tonight. There was a podcast on that if you want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> on the left-hand side is going to be the Collège de, de Cinq, a place or a school that taught languages. And as I stand there staring, I literally feel like I'm in a movie because I have a flashback and I honest to God don't know whether I stood there for 30 seconds or 10 minutes but I go back to 1976 and I'm, seven, I'm 19 years old and it's a warm September morning and I've been in Paris for one week I've never been away from home I'm a little nervous And I'm going for what I think is going to be a a job opportunity. The gentleman who owned both the the, uh, travel company and the school uh, was a friend of our family's. My parents were in business with him. And he had invited me to come to France, as had my wife's sister, who, by coincidence, was living in our home for a few months in Los Angeles. And she also encouraged me. And the gentleman's name was Charles, or Charlie. And Charlie said, look, you come to Paris and I'll make sure you have a job teaching English. And then you can save yourself some money and make a little bit of money. And I thought, what a great idea, what a great opportunity. And so there I am that morning, standing in front of that door the same way, but in that particular moment, I was trying to figure out how to get in. Because the doors don't open. And I didn't realize the buzzer on the right was what I needed to press. And I am standing out there like an idiot until finally somebody comes in, hits the buzzer, and opens the door. And I walk straight back and meet the secretary, Sylvie, who says, Charles, will see you right now. Come on in. And I see Charlie, and we shake hands and ask me how my trip's going, and I say, great, and he says, wonderful. He invites me to have dinner with him and his family the following week. And By the way, I should describe Charlie, because when I walked in that first time, sitting in front of me is this gorgeous, dark blue, Rolls-Royce, silver shadow owned by Charles who is a very good looking man dark hair uh, born in Tunisia but lived in France for most of his life this is the 70s guys, open shirt and a chain (laughs) and he was a playboy to the point where if he invited me out for an evening I was always going to be sure that there would be Charles and two girls and me and the two girls Neither were for me. (laughs) So, Charles says to me, I want you to meet the headmaster of the school, Mr. Daniel Bridgewater. And he'll tell you how uh, you're going to be working with us. And if you need anything, let me know. So, he walks me into Mr. Bridgewater. There's a sign that says on the door, Daniel Bridgewater, headmaster. And I see sitting at a desk, this kind of Henry Higgins-like figure. He's got, uh, losing his hair on top, uh, sides are a little out, glasses down at the end of his nose like this. And Charles says to him, Daniel, I want you to meet Rick Krupnik. Bridgewater looks up and says, ah, the American. <laughs> so he stands up, all five foot eight of them, Gives me a dead fish handshake And sits back down And Charles slaps me on the back And says, Daniel, take care of you If you need anything, let me know Now, I don't know how many of you have ever Been in this situation before This was the only time it ever happened to me In my entire life But if you're in a job interview Or you have a, a first day of a new job One would expect the person Sitting in front of you To actually say something not Daniel. No, Mr. Bridgewater is still writing his notes. Still looking down. And, and, and then he looks at me, stares at me. Just stares at me. Doesn't say a word. And again he says, Ah, young Mr. Krupnik, my American. So I said, yes, sir, I'm, I'm here. And uh, I'm here. he said, why are you here? I said, well, I'm here to teach English. And he says, Hardly. You are here to teach American. You could never teach English. <laughs> I'm 19. I'm supposed to have a job. I'm talking to all be By the way, I have no idea how to teach English. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm depending on these people to tell me. So Bridgewater says to me, Why are you here? And I said, Well, uh, I told you. And he said, No, why are you in Paris? I said, "Ah, oh, well, I had an opportunity to come and I tell him about Isabel's sister and the family and I said, and also I'm, I'm going to be doing a radio show from France. I'm, I'm a uh, broadcasting major and I'm going to be sending audio tapes back every week and they're going to, they're going to edit them and I'm getting credits for this and I'm studying history uh, as well and I'm going to get credits for that and, and all the things that I really wanted to do with France. I'm going to see all the sites. And he says to me, hmm, You've left something out. Teaching English did not bring you to France, did it? I said, well, I mean, I'm supposed to, no. Let me tell you something about our school. Every professor here has graduated university. Most of our professors either have a master's degree or are working on a master's. We have two doctoral students and one PhD. And we have you. Yeah, you have me. So he says, here's what I'd like you to do. And he pulls a piece of paper together, and then a blank piece of paper, and on the paper is written, and he's giving me a test. I'd like to gauge your command of English. Okay? Puts me into a room. He says, I expect this will take you about an hour. So I'm doing the test. Now, I'm an AP English Uh, I I had got uh, uh, credits for university I took AP English I think I'm pretty good but this is all stuff that I forgot he's asking me to conjugate certain things and what's in the subject and the predicate and God knows what else then he's a writing test on top of it and I'm not feeling very good I walk back in there and I hand him the paper and uh, nods his head pulls out a red pen and begins marking things up. Finally, he says to me, you know, it's not as bad as I had feared, (laughs) but I'm really not sure what we're going to do with you. So here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to take the rest of the week off. I will pay you for a full day today, by the way, and uh, go visit things and, uh, and, and give me a call on Monday. So I'm really not feeling so bad about Given given Being paid for the day and and not going back to work I'd only been there a week But I'm also feeling very nervous because I'm a poor student I've got like $1,500 that's supposed to last me from September until January Now luckily for me, I don't have to worry about room and board Because I am staying at my future wife's home And her family has provided me that But clearly everything's so much more expensive there And I'm trying to figure all of this out, but I don't give it a lot of thought. And I wait the weekend, and then on Monday, I make the dreaded call. And Mr. Bridgewater's not in. He's gone for two days. Uh, Call back. So I call back on Wednesday, and he's busy. I call back on Thursday, and he's busy. I go to see him on Friday, but he's too busy to see me. Now, luckily for me, I have two friends that I met in Los Angeles who actually worked at that school. They were responsible for bringing some of the French kids over on the program that, uh, that my wife came over on. One of them was named Tony Bolger, who is now a PhD uh, and quite an expert on the English language and teaching it. The other is one of my best friends in the whole world, David Henson. And to this day, David and I, every time I'm in Paris, we go out and have a drink and we laugh. Well, after about 10 days of not being able to get a hold of Bridgewater, I don't know what to do anymore. I go to see Charlie, and I say to him, um, you know, can you intercede? And he said, well, look, uh, Daniel runs the school. I'm sure he's trying to figure it out. Just give him some time. So David and Tony, in my uh, rather depressed state, dragged me over to what really was our hangout, the pub Winston Churchill, just off the Champs-Élysées, And I say look guys I don't even know what I'm going to do I I don't have a lot of money here I'm not sure how I'm going to last And David says to me well you know He's testing you I said what do you mean he's testing me He's testing you I'm sure that Charlie didn't tell him Until maybe two days before that you were even coming in And he really doesn't know what to do with you And he's trying to figure it out Now Tony Who is older than both David and I and also likes his drink says to me why don't you just bugger the bastard and I said what? he says get into his face I said well I mean, he's a headmaster yeah, and that probably won't work alright here's what you do <laughs> tell him that you want to teach American not English tell him that you want to teach advanced students who want to learn the American way of life and business and this and that. And I think to myself, you know, that's not a bad idea. So I uh, make an appointment to see Bridgewater. And I actually get one this time. And he greets me as he does every time he sees me. Ah, young Mr. Krupnick, how may I help you today? <laughs> I said, well, Mr. Bridgewater, I said, uh, I'm really confused. I was supposed to have a job here And I really want to do this, and yet I'm not given any kind of a chance. He said, well, I'm still trying to figure out where you fit in our curriculum. And so I said to him, well, what if I were to teach American? He pulls his glasses off like this and says, go on. (laughs) Why don't I teach people how to speak American? In other words, you don't have to worry about me screwing up English. I'm going to teach them about American business, how to talk uh, American slang. I can take a Time magazine with me and, and go over, you know, current events, which, by the way, I had been doing, thanks to Isabel, with two students that she had gotten me. And he says, hmm, it has possibilities. Tell you what, you call me tomorrow morning. And I kind of give him one of these, yeah, right, looks. And he goes, no, no, you call And let me look at our roster of students, and I'll see if there's anybody that might fit. So I do call, and lo and behold, I don't get him, but I do get Sylvie, the secretary, who informs me that on Monday, they have me teaching a doctor who wants to learn conversational American. Now, I'm thrilled until I find out that it's like halfway across Paris, and it's going to take me more time to get there than I'm going to actually be teaching, but I don't care. I get the job and slowly but surely, I'm getting more and more jobs. Now, that doesn't mean Bridgewater's any nicer to me, because he's not. He's very pompous. He never fails to remind me that you, sir, are still a sophomore in university. But at least I'm working. Now, unfortunately for me, and I heard Taylor talk about kidney stones, I passed three kidney stones At 19 years old. Uh, The first one was in Lyon when I was there visiting a friend. I had no idea that I had passed a kidney stone but they figured it out when I got back to Paris that that's what was going on with me. So I literally blew through my money and in fact it was Isabel's mom who bailed me out and paid for my hospital bill and I had to go home. It was just that simple. I was out of cash and had lost a ton of weight and was really depressed. And, and I left Paris in November of that year feeling very, very depressed. I actually left feeling like I had failed. And I wasn't used to failing. Despite the fact that I was young, I had been pretty successful with most things I was doing. But I left, uh, said goodbye to Charlie. Bridgewater wasn't around. And then the following summer, my wife and I's friendship blossomed into romance. And I get to go back to Paris in March of the next year, of 70, 78. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, I see Daniel Bridgewater and he greets me with a young Mr. Krupnik, but doesn't talk to me. And I go back every year, as I have talked about earlier, and I would always visit my friend Charlie, and I'd see my friends at the school. And finally, one year, Bridgewater actually walks up to me Ah, young Mr. Krupnik And shakes my hand and says uh, Yeah, you're doing wonderful things I said, well, thank you, sir I appreciate that I really didn't want to be around him And later that day My good friend David says to me Come on, let's grab a drink at Winston Churchill And as we walk into the pub Winston Churchill Who should be sitting there Reading a newspaper a pint on one side, but Bridgewater. And David says, come on, let's go and say hello to him. And I said, you got to be crazy. I do not want to say hello to this guy. He says, come on. And I walk over and all of a sudden it's, ah, Mr. Krupnik, Mr. Henson, please join me. And he proceeds to be chatty as can be and charming. And eventually the talk gets around to my experience at the school. And he said, you know, Mr. Krupp, I do admire you so. Now, he could have told me i just won the lottery. I wouldn't have been any less shocked. And I said, you had a funny way of showing it. He goes, no, 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 you, you, you missed my point. I did pretty much everything I could do to dissuade you from working in our school. We had a wonderful reputation. And Lord knows I didn't want some 19-year-old who would be out fornicating all night long and drinking to come into my school and teach. He said, Lord knows I have enough problem with the educated people doing that. I didn't need a kid. I said, well, thank you. I said, but, you know, uh, I have to say it was really not me who had the idea, you know, if I were going to confess, it wasn't me who had the idea to, uh, to teach American. I said, that was Tony's idea. And Bridgewater smiles and says, yes, yes. And I look at David, who's looking at Bridgewater, and I say, okay, what am I missing here? And David says to him, should I tell him? I said, tell me what? David says, it wasn't Tony's idea. I said, well, I figured it wasn't. Was it your idea? He goes, no, it was his. He points to Bridgewater. I said, What? He said, if he would have told you, you probably would have regretted it. We wanted to seem like it was your idea. And he was trying to figure out what to do with you. And he looks at me and he says, surprise. And I was. And from that point on... It was a friendship that began to develop with Daniel Bridgewater and I. And I don't say we went out to drink all the time because we didn't. But we would have lunch from time to time. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, in the 90s. Um, And uh, when David told me, David and I were having a drink uh, someplace and he told me that Bridgewater had died, I was genuinely, genuinely sad. So all of that, that whole story that I just told you now, I'm running through my head as I'm standing in front of that door on number seven, Rue Marbouf, and that's my return. Thank you. If you'd like to tell a story like this one, or just enjoy the show, visit tellmemorelive.org. That's tellmemorelive.org, where you'll find a list of upcoming shows, plenty of ways to pitch your story, and our podcast featuring storytellers from previous shows. Until next time, thanks for listening to Tell Me More Live.